Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. They do what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play how they want to play, dance how they want to dance, kick and they step up for it. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what the Adams Family did for pinball. I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to be creepy, kooky, mysterious, spooky and altogether ooky is... James Hunt. Just James Hunt. No one else. Uh, yes, we are, we are on a two-hander for this podcast, uh, a sort of uh, late... Uh, inability to uh, line up our guests for this one. Um, this is we're kind of doing this as a as a Halloween special, um, but where most specials of things are like longer and bigger, um, this one's kind of the opposite. Um, because <laughs> and for, as a special treat, we're giving you less of us. Yes, a um, couple of reasons for this. Um, partly to make sure that we actually do get it out in time for Halloween, because there's no point doing a, a Halloween special um, like you know on the first or second of November. Um, so to give us enough time to actually get around to recording this with our schedules and illness and various other things and also to edit it. Uh, This is going to be shorter than usual and how we're going to do that is we are going to skip the news. Um, There actually hasn't really been a load of stuff recently. There's maybe one or two things to talk about but we did do a big News Minnesota catch-up earlier in the month and we'll do another one early in November so uh, we'll cover anything that may or may not happen but what will probably happen is between recording this and it coming out as always happens something absolutely major will happen so you can look forward to that. We've caused that to happen. Um, but in the meantime uh, yeah we're here to talk about so this is kind of officially our episode on the 1991 Barry Sonnenfeld's 1991 film The Addams Family Uh, we are also going to talk about the 1993 sequel Addams Family Values uh, just because we probably won't otherwise get an opportunity I I doubt we'd end up doing this twice so we're going to cover both of those films we were looking at potentially covering the new one that's just come out to make it nice and topical and a new release episode but neither of us have seen it James was possibly going to but James what happened (laughs) I was supposed to but my daughter changed her mind about wanting to go and see it and asked if we could stay in and play Nintendo so hard to argue it's hard to turn that down to be honest yeah uh, there is also a third Adams Family film that some people may not be aware of that I intend to briefly talk about when we've covered the first two as well. Because, um, well, we could talk about whether it's technically part of the same series or not. Um, but uh, it's about the only interesting thing about it. In the meantime, before any of that, uh, and before we don't do news, um, I'm going to ask James to explain to me something about comics. And a little while ago, you may recall on our Matrix episode, we recorded that just after the first issue of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run, uh, which began with the um, the twin interlinked uh, miniseries House of X and Powers of X. The first issue of House of X had just come out, so we were able to make all kinds of speculation and judgments based on a single issue of what will probably be a several years long form run um, we've now had 13 issues of that run um, and and the first issue of something written by somebody else is Marauders by somebody else 
Marauders is by someone else, yeah. yeah. Um, so we've had the 12 issues of House of X and Powers of X combined, and we've had the first issue of the actual X-Men ongoing series by Hickman. So um, now that we've got this far in, James, do you have any more snap judgments or predictions? What, what's been going on? What was the premise of the, of the two miniseries? What did that end up being? For anyone who's not been following, what's been happening, and is it interesting, and is it good? Yeah, so it is is both extremely interesting and very good. Um, the The concept seems to be that, armed with knowledge of the future, um, the I guess mainly Xavier, but the X Men in general have sort of clubbed together to to form a sort of futuristic society on the island of Krakoa. Um, and rather than trying to protect a world that hates and fears them, they are sort of, they've gone into this kind of imperial thing of they've created a country and they're no longer hiding. They've invited all mutants to de facto join their nation as as members of the mutant like society. Um, they have also, <laughs> they're so technologically advanced, they've conquered death. So Every time an X-Men dies or any mutant dies, they can restore their mind from a backup and grow them in a clone. I mean, it's it's really sprawling. It's kind of hard to, to explain in a really simple way. But it, it's kind of coherent and um, interesting in a way that X-Men hasn't been probably since Grant Morrison took over. So I'm I'm really excited by what's actually happening in it. And I know you've read everything as well, have you? Uh, yes, I've read everything except for that first issue of Marauders, um, the first of the, of the kind of non-Hickman <laughs> but related X series that have launched. Uh, but no, I, I I did end up, after not being sure if I was going to, I did end up reading all of House and Powers of X and I picked up the first issue of, of X-Men proper. Um, I found, I mean, I did find at times, particularly with Powers of X, when it's kind of jumping into the the future that that you know, and what I kind of got the impression of was that the reason for showing us that future, you know, all, all that future stuff was in order to show us the future that would come to pass if the X Men don't do what they're doing now, effectively, because uh, there is a character. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the futures. Of, yeah, um, but I I found other than occasionally not always following exactly what was going on, particularly in the future with concepts that sometimes with things like this, I don't know if these are things that I'm supposed to know from like a background in the characters or if they're stuff I'm not supposed to know because they're new and they're supposed to be, you know, obfuscated and confusing. Yeah, my just quickly on that point, I think a lot of people when they read comics, especially X-Men comics, get sort of hung up on the idea of like, Ooh, am I supposed to know this? Like, what's going on? In any case, the answer, especially in Hickman's case, is that if you need to know, you'll be told. And if you don't, it might just be an Easter egg. Like, don't don't get too hung up on whether whether you're supposed to recognise any of this stuff or not. Yeah. Because all the information you get is in the story when you need it. Yeah. Um. Broadly speaking, a lot of that future stuff was just completely new, and like I was as in the dark as anyone. Yeah. I think I got as it went on I got that impression that yeah these were actually a lot of things that he was introducing fresh. But aside from that aside from the kind of the big sprawling idea stuff the main thing that struck me was how fun a lot of it's been so far and I didn't really expect that. I think because I often haven't felt a kind of sense of 
fun and even warmth in like I do find Hickman's work quite dry and cold a lot of the time um but he is obviously having so much fun writing the voices of characters like Xavier and Magneto and Emma Frost like he is really well suited especially to writing Magneto um and even I was about to say his Magneto is amazing yeah. <laughs> like he's such a great version of that character and there was a there's like one scene with Namor in it and uh you know Namor having a conversation with 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 Xavier and, and Magneto about it and again just like you know the way that he writes those kind of characters he's very good at writing those characters who believe that they are better than everybody else which is pretty much the thrust <laughs> of what the, the great line from Namor is um so I've I've really liked that and I always like x-men stories where magneto is on the same side as xavier but it doesn't necessarily mean that i mean in this case he is being kind of very friendly but it's like i like that you've always got that undercurrent with magneto of well if if he decides that he's going to go off on his own ideas then he will you know the thing i like about this version of magneto is that he's like walking around with sort of grandiose fantasies of being like a living god (laughs) and this time it's as if the X-Men have bought into his like yeah. actual yeah, like Xavier narrative. He, he he's almost the Xavier here because he is the one who's kind of because Xavier's hiding bit well, hiding in one sense. We we don't really know what's going on with the Cerebro helmet, the way that means we're not seeing Xavier's face at any point. Um but Xavier is kind of more the cold and distant one, and Magneto is the one who's getting really emotional and enthusiastic about what's going on. Uh, and kind of inspiring people more, I think. You know, being the kind yeah, of yeah, like when he's figurehead. walking amongst the walking amongst the mutant kids who are like yeah. flocking to him, like he's one of the Beatles yeah. or something. Um, so that's been really fun. Um, I think he's writing Cyclops well as well. Um, I think yeah. I think it's really interesting that sort of we've had kind of so long now of of Cyclops kind of being in the role that he's in um, of sort of. And like what what I feel like we've been seeing for quite a while in X-Men comics now is um Cyclops now represents the effect of being someone who who grew up kind of with Xavier's ideals and and how that's kind of shaped and changed him um mm-hmm. rather than him just being, you know, the kind of steadfast leader guy. It's like, well what happens when those when all that stuff is going round and round in your head and then all the things that happen to you to him happen to you what comes out the other side like what I did, okay this is going to sound like a slightly weird comparison but cyclops to me now feels like what they did with dick grayson in the 80s when they had him lead the teen titans and then they had him become nightwing it's like he's he's the what comes next stage of being the kind of the faithful sidekick character do you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so i so i, I like that um yeah i think and you know the the whole the plot thing with with moira and sort of her you know what it turns out that her big deal is uh you know was was it i mean i'm gonna say it was inspired even though it immediately got accused of ripping off several other stories but it didn't matter because (laughs) it (laughs) it was inspired by an existing sci-fi novel (laughs) but yeah no i've i've found that as someone who's you know not as long-term invested in the x-men as you but likes reading a good x-men comic when i find one that yeah, it's it's interesting ideas and it's good character stuff. And it sounds like from your perspective, as someone who's massively invested in it, I mean, I'm like my barometer for a good X Men comic is like eighty sort of eighties Claremont, uh, noughties Morrison, and this is definitely up there with them. 
Like I, you know, I have a soft spot for all the sort of nineties, like soap opera craziness. But this is objectively brilliant. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very happy because I will read even bad X Men comics. And these are far from being bad X-Men comics. And just so that we can kind of look back on this in future and and judge, um, do you have any feelings about things it might do or direction it might go? I'm pretty sure that whoever is running the show, it's not Charles Xavier. (laughs) As in, you think there's someone behind him or you think that dude in the helmet is not Charles Xavier? Yes. (laughs) Um, I think... (laughs) I'm not not 100% sure... I wouldn't be unsurprised to find out that it was Cassandra Nova under the helmet. I was just going to say, do you think it's Cassandra Nova? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a strong possibility. We'll see. I look forward, as I say, in about six months' time when it turns out not to be the case. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about it then. Yep. Okay, so a little bit earlier than usual, but let's move on to some movie discussion. Um, as I say, we're, we're going to kick off by talking about the first film, and then I think we'll probably at some point when we've exhausted that naturally segue into the second one. Uh, so before we get going, let's listen to uh, a trailer, probably, for Barry Sonnenfeld's 1991 film, The Addams Family, which you may not even have known was based on a comic. When we first met years ago, it was an evening much like this. Magic in the air. A boy. A girl. An open grave. You were so beautiful. Pale and mysterious. No one even looked at the corpse. Ah! Miss! Wednesday, play with your food. Is this made from real lemons? Yes. I'll buy a cup. If you buy a box of my delicious Girl Scout cookies. Are they made from real Girl Scouts? Then you're a handful. I've done this before. This holiday season, they'll make you feel right at home. Last night, you're like some desperate howling demon. You frightened me. Do it again. The Adams Family. Sorry. But you'll have to wait until November 22nd. Okay, so that was the trailer for uh, the first Adams Family film. Well, I mean, the first in this series of Adams Family films, but I think not the first Adams Family film generally, because I think there had been a TV movie of the TV series back in the 70s. Um, so the Adams Family's got an interest in history. As I say, it's sort of it's. I think it's one that wouldn't necessarily occur to people as a comic book movie. And actually, comic book is a misnomer here. I was going to say, there's no. It's based on the, comics, cartoons. <laughs> there are no comic books that qualify as source material. Put it that way. Yeah, um, but the Adams Family originated in the 1930s as a series of New York cartoons by Charles Adams. He he named them after himself. Um, they were they were single panel gag cartoons, weren't they? I think you know they, they, there's not even any kind of narrative to them, um, but the, other than the fact that obviously the characteristics of the family would get established as they went on, so there would be kind of running characteristics. But as far as I'm aware, there's never any kind of you know strip to strip narrative between them. Um, they're very much you know kind of isolated gag comics. Um, but I think when they kind of really passed into the the mass cultural consciousness was in the 1960s 
uh, with that TV series, which debuted in 1964. Uh, famously starred John Astin, who I still can't get over how weird it is seeing him as the Riddler in the second season of the 66 Batman series, uh, because there was a financial dispute with... Um, Frank Gorshin, so they cast John Astin, who looks and sounds nothing like Frank Gorshin, to play the Riddler, and then Frank Gorshin comes back for season three. Uh, but he, while he wasn't the best Riddler, uh, I think he was the sort of the standout feature, well, one of the standout features of the 60s TV series, because the other standout feature was the theme tune uh, that it gave to the world. Uh, the the, the 60s really smashed it with theme tunes, didn't it? Really did, yeah. yes. Um, what happened? Yeah, it's one of those where, yeah, like a lot of shows if they if they had a memorable theme tune in the 60s they would keep that theme tune in kind of later reimagining well even the like i always think it's funny how the like a spider-man film released in 2019 yeah has the 60s spider-man theme in it (laughs) yeah because it's just so synonymous with the character and and you know batman obviously you know for all the, the batman themes that there have been that is the one that people will most remember and absolutely you you can't do adam's family without doing the da 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 click click it's just you know <laughs> yeah the other weird thing about the adam's family is that it's sort of and i've i i meant to kind of check the dates here as to uh the the contemporaneousness of them but uh oh there you go no it was it was literally the same year it was also 1964 that the monsters launched <laughs> is this a man thing swamp thing situation <laughs> I think it must be. Um, I've I've not kind of looked at, looked into and and read up on, you know, kind of which, which came first or or you know which was seen. So I mean, they are different. The you know, I mean, what they both are is shows about unconventional um, macabre families. But you know, the Adams family aren't monsters. They're they're weird people who who like monstery things whereas the monsters are you know there's a vampire and there's a frankenstein and i'm I, I <laughs> to say, frankenstein i think it's acceptable to say a frankenstein but i won't get into that debate now <laughs> um, um so there is a difference but equally it is kind of weird that they both um, showed up at the same time um, but while the monsters like the adams family had later tv reimaginings what the monsters never had was a successful 1990s movie um but it wasn't it initially didn't seem like it was going to be a success to the extent like it was it was a, it was a real struggle making it apparently there were kind of issues during the shooting i think it's barry sonnenfeld's first film uh he was obviously famously the um cinematographer for the coen brothers among other people um but then this was kind of his directorial debut uh, but it was a bit of a struggle to get made and then the original studio orion actually pretty much ditched it uh, they sold it to Paramount. Uh, so this was a film that had a 25 million budget and ended up having 30 million spent on it. Um, Orion thought it was going to be a massive flop, so they sold it to Paramount to distribute. Uh, and Paramount <laughs> walked away with a 191 million dollar box office. I was going to say that is, it. as decisions go, that was a poor one. Uh, yeah, like, well, that is he... giving away your winning lottery ticket. Yeah. What's what's even better is that that then led them to spend a load more money on the sequel, and the sequel only just broke even. That's um, insane to me, absolutely insane. Yes, well, Having watched them back to back, and we'll get to yes. that. But wow, we we will get to that. It is it is. Me- but then again, you know, maybe the box office for a second film is contingent on what the first film is like. But the point is, the first film was a massive hit. You, I can't believe the drop off for Adam's Family Values because it's a phenomenal film. But we're going to get to it. We've got to talk about the first film first. Yeah. So Adam's Family comes out in nineteen ninety one. Um, um, 
it's one of those where I mean this is the kind of the early nineties, the sort of I think kicking off us or even probably continuing a kind of golden era for sort of high concept comedies. Um, and it just absolutely taps into something that means it becomes this massive runaway hit. Uh, you can't escape uh, MC Hammer's Adam's Groove um, <laughs> over the over the winter of 1991. Um, the world of pinball is transformed. The world of pinball is transformed. I do want to talk about the pinball table, so I'm not even I'm not going to throw it away on a little bit at the start. I'm actually <laughs> going to talk about the pinball table because I think it's the biggest, most enduring legacy of this entire film series because it's the best pinball table ever made. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know, and it it really did sort of. I mean, the '60s TV series was one of those things, as I say, that was kind of in the cultural consciousness. Um, but I think that you know the movie went a long way to really kind of re-establishing Adams Family as a brand to the extent that ever since then, obviously with breaks, it, it has been a franchise that people have revived and done things with pretty much ever since. You've had the films, you had the attempt to mount a new TV show off the back of the films, you had a cartoon off the back of the films, you had video games, then more recently there's been a musical and then there's a new animated movie out this year. So, you know, as I say, when you when you look at the kind of the two of them, the Adams family and the Munsters, the Adams family was the one that was able to pick up that momentum and it's all off the back of this movie being a massive hit. Um what did you think about it going back to it? now though that's a bit of a leading question but because we have discussed this a bit already yeah so it's funny because my memory of the second film is a lot stronger i think i probably saw the second one in the cinema and not this one um Mm. i've not revisited either probably for going like probably 15 20 years since i last watched them um that first one surprisingly weak like the thing that strikes me about it is the cast is all amazing, like absolutely perfect cast. Yeah. Story not so great. Um, a few good jokes, but also like, in terms of the structure, it's really sort of stop start. The first half of the film basically just just seems to be a bunch of small set pieces. Yeah. That don't really go anywhere. And then you get this sort of really incredibly weak actual plot about like, oh, this guy is pretending to be Fester. And you're like, yeah, but come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on. I I like the idea of the plot of, you know, bring of, you know, Fester having been estranged from, and from the family slash missing. And then somebody shows up in their lives and you don't know if it's Fester as an idea. I think that's pretty good because what that gives you is that gives you your way in. That gives you your way to introduce the family by showing them from an outsider's mm-hmm. perspective. Um, so I can see why that makes sense. I think the I think the biggest issue with it is though that you never don't believe that this is Fester. Not least because the film is marketed on the idea that Christopher Lloyd is playing Fester and he's in the posters as Fester with the shaved head and everything and it's like, you know, the idea that this guy with hair who's Christopher Lloyd and who looks and sounds like Uncle Fester isn't Uncle Fester, you're you're never going to buy that. So just from a kind of plot buy-in point of view um, it doesn't really convince. And well, as, even and I as think... soon as he turns up, like the first thing he does is like grab the the lawyer guy, you know, hold him against a wall, inverted while grunting like a maniac. It's like, yeah, if you were going to try and convince us that this guy is someone else, make it a bit more subtle. Like, 
but I, I think also it's kind of indicative of the fact that, as I say, what the film kind of feels obliged to do is to sort of introduce us to the Adams family. And I think this is where it gets everything kind of back to front because I think the film itself shows later and then its own sequel absolutely 100% shows um, that the way to make the Adams family funny is not to have kind of ordinary, you know, not to show the perspective of ordinary people and yeah. <laughs> go, look at this weird family. It's to do it from the perspective of the Adamses and put the Adams among supposedly normal people who are actually crazier and weirder than them. Because that's the key thing. And I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know how much it holds true of the 60s TV series because I don't know it that well. But what I think really characterizes these two films, and it's the kind of, it's the great irony, is that the Adams family are supposedly weirdos, but as a family, they are, I mean, okay, aside from the fact that Wednesday's constantly trying to murder Pugsley, <laughs> aside from that, they, it's kind of like the, the argument with The Simpsons. It's like, as a family, they're actually great because they, you know, Morticia and Gomez are obsessed with each other. The family look out for each other, and it's like, you know, they are a, a functioning, they're not a dysfunctional family, they're a functioning family unit. Yeah, they're completely and, functional. Yeah, it's just they're kind of all their peccadillos, you know, and their their sort of you know their weirdness in inverted commas isn't actually anything that's intrinsic to what they're like as people. And so, what's great is when you get you get a little bit of it in this film, and as I say, you get it much more in Adam's Family Values. Is well, here's what happens when you take these people and put them in the real world. And then I say, I think what Adam's Family Values really lays on is actually. The, the white, blonde, suburbanite, rich people are far creepier than the Adamses who actually have a strong moral core. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But here, you've got that sequence kind of late on, and it comes far too late in the film, it really does, where they've been booted out of the house because Fester slash Gordon is the rightful inheritor of it, and they have to go and live in a motel. And Gomez is sat there watching Sally, Jesse, Raphael and phoning them up every five minutes... And that's, I think, most of the best jokes in the film come in about a 15-minute segment that comes far too late and is over too quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's the weird thing about the film as well, isn't it? That, it, like, you remember them as a comedy, but what you actually remember is all the amazing, like, one-liners from yeah. Adam's Family Values. Yeah. What you're actually watching with the Adam's Family is just, a, a, it's more people just doing weird things... Yeah, in front of people who are surprised, and it's a bit like <laughs> it it wears thin quite quickly. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's just kind of it. It's almost all set up. It's all it's it's like this is this is what's going. This is what the house is. This is what the family setup is. This is the background of Fester. This is the complicated process by which you find the massive vaults. You know, this is the Chekhov's gun of the the route to the vault that's going to become important later. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just yeah, it's it is it's otherwise really sort of lacking in um kind of excitement. And yeah, it's sort of there are, you know, there are jokes and lines here and there, but I think a lot of as you say, a lot of what's memorable, I mean, for starters, a lot of them are actually, there are much better one-liners in the second film. Um, it's actually different writers on the two films. The first one is written by Caroline Thompson and Larry Wilson, and the second one is written by Paul Rudnick, not <laughs> Paul Rudd. Um, although, you know, I could, well, I could well believe that he was writing movies in 1993, because he's ageless. Um but yeah, so I think there there is a difference there, and there is a difference in approach, even though you've got fundamentally the same cast. It's just the second one gives these great comedians more to work with. Well, I, th- people- I think the the key thing about the second one is that it's a satire. 
or the, mm. at the very least it has this big thread of satirizing middle America and this doesn't really have that like this one is I mean it's just you know it's it's got this like gothic sheen over an otherwise very generic sort of almost weekend at Bernie's style mm. plot that is just just an excuse to show us weird stuff happening without any real sort of deeper thread to it I mean it's a it's a it's a very nice sheen in the sense of it's like it's a it's a really good looking film. Um, yeah, like the design of the film is amazing and like the cast immediately inhabit their characters in a really yeah. super strong way with one exception who I think is better in the sequel but again we'll talk about that when we have to. <laughs> Which one's that? Go on. <laughs> well okay, grandmama is the one person who changes. Oh, right. The one person who changes, and yeah, is is much better in the sequel because yeah. it's um, it's uh, Carol Kane in the sequel, isn't it? Yep. Um, yeah, <laughs> from Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's I mean the 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 first one does at least, as I say, it, it kind of gives us it it gives us the sort of you know our our first look at just how utterly perfectly cast Angelica Houston and, and Raúl Julia are as as Morticia and Gomez. Um, it's. Um, I, I actually think as I actually thought going back to it this time. Uh, I mean, I think again. I think Gomez is actually better in the second one because I mean I think he gets a little more to do because of the Fester plot in the second one. Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, I think yeah, a lot of the better lines that he gets are in the second one. I think in the first one, it's just about him. He just kind of has to be there and just kind of have that voice and kind of say things in the way that he does. I think you do because of that. You do kind of overlook that he's not actually getting many actually great jokes there. Um, the thing that struck me on watching it this time that I actually did think that um, that Christopher Lloyd really stands out um and i mean it's so like it's possibly the least subtle performance in just about anything ever (laughs) but he really does like throw himself into it and this is in like a run of films from christopher lloyd where he's done at the back end of the nine of the 80s he's done the last two bats the future films and then he's done who framed roger rabbit Mm -hmm. and then he's done this it's like for that brief period, and then what's weird is it all kind of drops off a cliff after this and you barely see him for years afterwards. But for a few years, he is the absolute king of um, these high-concept family comedy movies. And he's doing something completely different in every single one, except for the fact that he's being quite excessive and shouty at various points in them. But, you know, you could look at a picture of him as Fester and a picture of him as Dot Brown and a picture of him as Judge Doom and not realise that it's the same person. Uh, in that <laughs> yeah, period, he's so good at inhabiting these characters and just really kind of throwing himself into them. Um, but where the what the first film does, I mean, again, it is something that the second film does better, but the first film is the star maker for Christina Ritchie, um, who, I mean, I don't know how old she is at the, during the making of the first one. Hang on, when was she born? She was born in 1980, so, like, so she's 10 when they're making the first one. She's a young and, 10. <laughs> And the comic timing and delivery of every single line that she has in the film is 
is remarkable. I mean, she doesn't have loads in the first one. You know, the, the kids do are just kind of hover around it a little bit. But the first one does have her, I'm a homicidal maniac, they look just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you do feel a little bit sorry for the guy playing Pugsley because he's being so overshadowed um, by her. But um, it is, I mean, it is it, one of It's notable where, by know, how much they give her in the sequel. They yeah. clearly went like, oh yeah, she's the real deal. Let's let's beef that role up for the follow-up. Yeah. I mean, you've even got kind of dotted around um, in the sort of various supporting roles. You know, the fact that Dan Hedaya playing a lawyer. Dan Hedaya is always going to be good at playing yeah. a, a smarmy lawyer. Um, he, he's a, it's a completely wasted role, um, but I do like that the the judge guy who um, the, he keeps splattering with the golf balls um, is Paul Benedict, who's a mainstay, uh, sadly passed away now, but a mainstay of the Christopher Guest um, mm-hmm. mockumentary films. He usually has quite small roles in them, um, but also he delivers what is maybe like certainly one of my favourite ever lines in movie history, which is, I'm just as God made me, sir, in Spinal Tap. Um, so it's always nice to see him pop up in things. <laughs> um, but then again, I think, again, I mean, I don't know how much more you have to say about the first film, but I feel like we probably do want to get onto the second one because, again, supporting cast is something where the second one just really ramps it up as well. I mean, um, I guess the the only thing I want to say about the first film is how much, like, Raul Julia is powering most of it, I feel. Like, yeah. Angelica Houston has this, like, presence... But Raul Julia has the energy. Oh yeah, it's completely and, like, like that yeah, performance running is, off his batteries. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that performance is so like nuanced and yet broadly comic. It just it makes me sad that we lost such a performer, <laughs> and like mm. that's not something I ever can say I ever felt before i rewatched these films because i was like well you know i don't really know what he was in aside from this and street fighter yeah but having seen what he's like in this i'm just thinking like he was absolutely wasted in street fighter and i'm i'm just i'm sad we didn't get to see more of raul julius gomez yeah, because I mean, he'd sort of, I mean, he he hadn't done a lot, I think, prominently in American film, really. He'd like he'd he I think he'd seem like he you know he'd been a kind of character actor, and I think he'd probably been very much typecast as Latino roles in a lot of things. And I think he was better known, I think, for stage stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like what should have happened would be. These films happen, and he is, you know, along with like Christina Ritchie, like a, a, a the, you know, his star is made by this in terms of bringing him to much wider attention, and you know, it does feel like there's a there's a parallel universe where he wasn't ill and he spent the nineties just doing loads more great stuff and a and a variety of stuff. I think what you say about feeling it more now, I think probably partly that is like we were kids when these films came out and i think we had less of a sense of like people's ages Mm. so you know he was a grown-up and grown-up actors die sometimes and i think when we were kids we wouldn't have realized that he was only 54 and that was ridiculously young he would have he would have he would have seemed older to us when we were younger so you do kind of feel it more when you're when you're closer to a lot closer to that age than than you were at the time (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. But he's not. I mean, I, I think there probably is a bit less energy from him in the second film because, you know, I think um, Angelica Houston talked about during the making of the second film, you know, he was already starting to be quite unwell then. Um, you don't get a sense of it the, the way you do from Street Fighter watching it. You know, <laughs> I mean, some of my favourite Gomez moments are in the sequel, actually. Mm. But I mean, let's get to the sequel because that's the interesting one. If we're being realistic, right? Well, it's just a it's just a better film. I mean, I actually because <laughs> the our initial intent was to predominantly cover the first one on this, and I and I, and I watched the first one in preparation because I hadn't seen it for quite. A while. I mean, I found when watching it that I remembered a lot of it. Although I remembered a lot of lines of dialogue because of the pinball game, which we are still. Doing <laughs> it too. Um, the second one I haven't actually rewatched like this week, but. I really don't feel like I need to because I've watched the second film a lot uh, over the last few years. It's one of those things that if it shows up on TV, no matter where it's up to in the film, I'll sit and watch it through to the end. Yeah, so I, uh, I remember loving the second one when I was a kid, but, you know, and knowing in my head, yeah, that, oh, yeah, that's a good film. Like, Wednesday Adam Reaction gifts, fair enough. Like, yeah. I, I remembered it being good. I didn't realize quite how brilliant it was going to be especially compared to the first because when i was re-watching the first i was thinking oh actually maybe there maybe it's not as good as i remember mm. but it, it is genuinely that the first one is like mostly a collection of sketches and the second one is like a full-on satirical look at america and i i think actually the second one i mean we kind of talked about it before with the kind of the memeable lines and stuff the second one, I think, is responsible for people looking back more fondly at the first one. Absolutely, yeah. Because you, you conflate the two as being one entity. I think because they came out quite close together, so they do have different writers, but they came out close together, they've got effectively the same cast, they've got the same director. You do kind of assume that quality-wise they will have been the same. Like It's actively criminal that the, the second movie made what, like a quarter or something? of Not even that, yeah, maybe. So, so, so the, fir the first film was $191 million off a $30 million budget. The second film was $48.9 million off a $47 million budget. That is so just risible. just over a quarter. Um, why were people not going to see this in November 1993? I mean, 1993, hell of a year for comedy movies because you've also got Groundhog Day. And, like, I would say that, like... Groundhog Day is the only thing that stops Adam's Family Values being my favourite comedy of the 90s. Also, the following year... Is it 93 or 94 you've got Dumb and Dumber? Was that 93 as well? Or was that... I've got a feeling that was 94, but then The Mask was 94, so... Uh, Good question. No, Dumb and Dumber was 94 as well. Uh, yeah, it came out in December 94. So this, the you know, winter comedies um, in the in the early 90s. Like, I, I, I think I think those are, are the big three 90s comedies as far as I'm uh, concerned. Mrs. Doubtfire was 93 uh, as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, all right, not as good as those two, but still pretty strong. That's that's all in one year. That's 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 pretty darn good. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Groundhog Day is an almost untouchable masterpiece, but in, in any other time, like Adam's Family Values, as I say, would be pretty much the standout comedy of the decade. That's how much I like it. <laughs> That's how funny it is. Weekend at Bernie's 2, also uh, 93, just one. Just... Oh, well, uh, I changed my mind. Uh, and I think, but I think what really kind of makes, what helps Adam's Family Values is that actually you've got often with these kind of films you'll have kind of two plot threads and particularly because of the fact that they separate 
Wednesday and Pugsley off to the summer camp stuff. And they're practically in their own film. And there would be a temptation to kind of say the reason why Adam's Family Values is so good is just because of that summer camp stuff. And we will talk about that. But before we do, I think it is worth noting that the the, the main plot of Adam's Family Values is still so much better than the first film. Um, I mean, well, plot... <laughs> the plot is fairly basic, but the the plot strand, in terms of how funny and how good it is, um, is better largely because of Joan Cusack. Yeah, so Joan Cusack comes along and she's she's like a Black Widow murderer who's trying to get her hands on the Adam's fortune by yeah. marrying and then killing off Fester. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I like how... Even though she's like this sort of, you know, Stepford wife-esque figure in appearance, she's actually almost as dark as the the Adams Adams yeah. is as well. Like you can, when she turns up, you can sort of believe that she's like a friendly, a character who's friendly to them because she just immediately like throws herself into the yeah the like psychosis of the family and you know the macabre nature of them. Mm. she seems almost at home with them yeah it's it, it's the irony that sort of she you know just wants to kill them and take the money and actually she could actually marry into the family eventually inherit the money but in the meantime actually <laughs> yeah. be with people who are very like her and actually be you know more happy and settled than she has been mm-hmm. in life um she might have even finally got a malibu barbie but, uh... <laughs> I've used that gif a lot of <laughs> going Malibu puppy. Um, it's just yeah. I, I, I mean, as I say, I, th- I think it is. It is largely her performance and that character that drives it. But also, I think again, it, it really kind of brings out the best in Fester, um, because Fester's just kind of constant puppy dog, um, even when like she's actively trying to murder him. He's just so like happy and delighted <laughs> to be married to her that he doesn't actually care that she's just repeatedly trying to kill him. Either the great sequence kind of af- after they got married, where you've got the uh, the the radio in the bath and the bomb yeah. and everything, and it's just. Uh... I think probably sort of a joke that maybe doesn't work as well is the like the the stuff with pubert sort of becoming a sort of blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy through the stress of what's going on is kind of a bit of a cheap gag that sort of, you know, I think they sort of run into the ground maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, Although he does get a really good action sequence towards the end. Yeah, the the Rube Goldberg machine (laughs) sequence. Um, But I think the thing is, I say, you know, while you've got that going on, even if there are maybe times when that kind of main plot flags... Um, you're always looking forward to it going back over to the summer camp. So Wednesday and Pugsley get sent to summer camp basically by uh, Debbie, um, uh, Joan Cusack's character, to get them out of the way because um, they suspect that something's going on. Basically, I think, is it even before they leave that... Oh, no, it's not before they leave that they find out that she's a serial killer because it's from uh, Joel's trading cards, isn't it, that they actually find out who she is. Yeah, yeah. They have their suspicions and it's enough for her to persuade the Adamses to send them off to summer camp. So they get to go to a classic American-style summer camp and basically run headlong into horrible white Americana. (laughs) Those Um, summer camp... um, The the husband and wife team running the summer camp. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, personified by um, Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski, who I, especially Christine Baranski, like I I love in anything that she's in, and Peter McNichol. I mean, people who are fans of Ali McBeal will think of him fondly, but I mainly think of him fondly because of Ghostbusters Two. Father of uh, the Bride for me. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, these are these are two like great. You know, they're, they're never lead comedy people. They're just great comedy supporting character actors who pop up and play these ridiculous cheery fixed. They're basically Ned Flanders. Um, running this summer camp Um, although I like the sort of as it goes on and again this is something that particularly Peter McNichol is really good at playing is you get to see the neurosis bubbling under the surface and as he starts to lose control of things um, and he just gets kind of more frantic and neurotic while trying to keep that fixed smiley face on it. Yeah. Um, it's great. I mean Um, that actually this whole plot is kind of a Simpsons subplot isn't it? in itself like yeah it's, you can it's absolutely imagine this being yeah. a sort of bart and lisa story i mean it basically is camp crust yeah well quite so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i know and that's that's where you get i mean you get a reappearance of future buffy star mercedes mcnab who i don't know if it, if she's technically supposed to be playing the same character as she did in the first film she's the girl scout cookie yeah, uh, which again is one 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 of the best lines, the Wednesday line in the first one about are they made from real Girl Scouts, and then she's the horrible rich kid in the second one, um, who I think is basically murdered at the end. Like, it's, <laughs> I, I don't think there's any way around the fact that like she's actually dead at the end of the film, <laughs> murdered in front of her parents by being set on fire. Um, but yeah, sort of. So you know, they kind of they they run up against her, and they run up against the um, uh, tradition of kind of. It's not whitewashing, is it? So much as just sort of uh, sanitizing uh, the story of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, the idea that kind of all the kind of outsidery kids have to play <laughs> have the to natives. play the natives, yeah. And all of the blonde white kids, the rich kids, <laughs> play the pilgrims. Um, and obviously among those outcasts as well is the other kind of key addition to the film, which is uh, Joel, who's the kind of nerdy Jewish bookish boy who uh, Wednesday and Pugsley befriend and who is uh, kind of sort of Wednesday's boyfriend. It's a really kind of cute, awkward sort of playing out of that relationship. Yeah, uh, and he also de- definitely dies at the end. Does he though? I mean, she <laughs> thing. The last line is she says, "I'd scare him to death," and yeah. then like the film ends with him screaming. Oh, I'm pretty sure scared nearly to death. I'm pretty sure she kills him. Yeah, in my head um, she kills him. But you know, and that's but that's again, it's sort of particularly like looking at the first film. Like I don't think you would have expected to actually have this kind of quite awkward and sweet relationship story play out for Wednesday like that. No, definitely um, not. Again, it kind of it, it plays to the strengths of kind of Christina Ritchie being able to take on something that's actually got a bit of, you know, dramatic heft to it. I mean, it's like they wouldn't have given this plot line to Pugsley. You know? No. I mean, um, I, that's sort of a symptom of the entire, you know, difference between the films is that the characters are actually a lot more well-realised and sort of complex in the in the follow-up. Mm. Well, it's like they they've sort of it's the it's the classic thing of the they've been able to sort of learn from them in the first film and and learn about the strengths of the actors and play to them a bit more I think as well. 
Um, but yeah, as I say, you know, it's 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 kind of got that. Well, one of the things it kind of reminded me of a little bit is when we were talking about um, uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, um, that film that we all agreed on. <laughs> um, but the the kind of the the MJ stuff in that, in terms of being the you know the kind of aloof uh, young teenage girl with flaws, but actually sort of. Um, you know, kind of not wanting, like, kind of almost fighting against awkwardly having to reveal that side of themselves in terms of emotionally opening up to somebody. Yeah. Uh, and then Wednesday's way around it is to murder him at the end. So, yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite, just to, like, this is going to definitely devolve into my favorite bits from Adam Shani Values. Yeah. But um, my favorite bit, probably in the entire film, is when Wednesday is trying to convince them that she wants to be, like, normal. And you get this really long shot of her attempting to smile. Attempting to smile, yeah. <laughs> and when she finally does it, everyone, like, recoils and, like, the kids are going, like, ah, make her stop. <laughs> like, it's just such a such a fantastic piece of acting because it's so funny. And yet, like, the instruction of, you know, smile but pretend to be doing it real, like, smile but, but don't make it look fake but also make it look scary. Yeah. Like, it's such a complicated expression to pull off, and yet she manages this, like, really weird, like, ominous expression of happiness. I mean, you, you talked about this practically feeling like a Simpsons plot, and it kind of it almost feels like something that you could only do in animation yeah. rather than actually, <laughs> like, someone's actual face. But it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the other things I think, especially in Animals Family Values, you get more of it is like the the relationship between Gomez and Morticia is so like it's so unlike anything you see in movies almost ever like it's really interesting cuz like m- most movies have this thing where like if you have a romantic subplot it's basically two characters that are sort of spiky towards each, each other especially in blockbuster films, they're like, they're sort of spiky towards each other. They go through some horrendous trauma. At the end of it, they kiss and then, you know, they hold hands for the rest of the film, whatever. Yeah. In in uh, The Adams Family, you have these two characters who are like absolutely besotted with each other to the point of forgetting there are other people in the room frequently. <laughs> like, yeah. at various points in the film, they're like, seconds away from openly fucking <laughs> regardless of what's happening around them like that bit where they do the toast and uh, he's like lifting a glass and he goes through a bunch of things and he goes um morticia and gomez are like trading off each other and they go to passion to paradise to pain and then uh morticia looks at him and goes tonight <laughs> and like that's in a room full of the entire family like there it's just it's really refreshing to see a relationship portrayed as like actually being sexual between two parents who yeah. actually like each other and like not even like each other like in that sort of doomed romantic way would literally die for one another yeah and for it to be and for it-, it to seem healthy and normal and well, because it's not, I mean, it's almost, I mean, from a dramatic point of view, I guess it's almost boring because there's like, there's no threat to it whatsoever. Like the, the, the films couldn't possibly introduce any plot dynamic that might mean that they would potentially separate because you, you wouldn't buy 
any scenario that that would threaten them um but also there's a there is a real sort of and it it might sound like a sort of slightly um like hanky thing to talk about but there's no it's it's really equal it's you know mm. there, there's kind of no there's certainly no sense of possessiveness about the relationship at all um you know and it, and it, i mean if anything it's it's gomez being completely enthralled to morticia rather than vice versa but it's a you know for a for a kind of family dynamic that is quite centered around the patriarch in the sense of i think the character of the adams family as a family comes from gomez the most but the that relationship is not patriarchal in the slightest mm-hmm. you know um and it's yeah it's it's the kind of thing again it's sort of you know you talk about not being able to get more of this because we lost Raul Julia, although I think based on the, the financial success or lack of of the second one, <laughs> we might not have got more anyway. Yeah. But that is something that, yeah, you know, I don't think, even though, as I say, from a drama point of view, there's not much interest in you can do with it, but I don't think it's a relationship that you can ever really get tired of seeing. It's just it's just so nice. And again, that's why, the you know, this great irony of the worst possible thing that can happen to Wednesday uh, is being locked in a shed having to watch um schmaltzy like <laughs> disney films and it's like but actually at home you know she's got the kind of the most stable and loving relationship <laughs> you could possibly see yeah but again that's that you know came back to what we've always said about you know the the great irony of the adams family is that as a family they are the only what the only thing that makes them weird as a family is how tight they are and, and how <laughs> yeah, much quite. they can that's actually unusual they're, they're like um, everything you know they're like the Simpsons, they're everything that sort of middle America purports to want, yeah, just not in a way that they want it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that that whole conversation around the Simpsons, um, you know, and the, the Simpsons and family values, and obviously Adam's family values, it being a deliberately ironic title, um, tying into that argument against them as well. But yeah, it always winds me up when people say the Simpsons are a dysfunctional family. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're a family that has issues sometimes, but. Uh, they are also an extremely rock solid family unit who care about each other, and that's been proven time and time again by the show, uh, and can't be counteracted just by, you know, uh, middle American people seeing the odd bit of Bart Simpson in the first season. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that's a separate argument. Hey, we've never talked about The Simpsons in detail. Yeah, we've never had a reason to. A podcast. Well, we'll get to it. Um, <laughs> it's not based on a comic. Well, yeah, tons of Simpsons it's been comics. based on Life in Hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it kind of is. You know, it's just, Matt Groening just, just <laughs> drew human hair on his bunny characters or whatever it is it says. <laughs> in. <laughs> anyway, um, back to the live-action Simpsons. Um, I mean, that's a good way of putting the Adams family, really, because... <laughs> Yeah. Certainly in Adam's family values, that is basically what they are, right? Yeah. Like they're as close as you can get to the, the live action Simpsons. If they were goth you know, if they were goth Simpsons, they would have been the Adams family. I mean, particularly when you look at the fact that again, the you know, the second one is coming out in ninety three. So mm-hmm. that's that's peak Simpsons era. You know, Sim- Simpsons has just had season four in ninety three and is 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 kind of I mean it's well it's past its peak in terms of popularity and viewing figures. But certainly, you know, The Simpsons has reached its cultural osmosis point by that stage. Mm-hmm. So, whereas in 91, you know, it's still kind of forming itself a bit more. Yep. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but it is, it's just, I mean, again, we, we could probably 
sit here and I think if, if I had watched it more recently I think more lines would jump to mind in terms of just going through and thinking <laughs> I mean about I can go through a few for you if you like uh, go on then yes pick, pick out some other bits <laughs> I like great when so when they're in the hospital and the girl's like giving this really long involved thing about like mommy kiss daddy and then an angel <laughs> asked the stork to bring a baby and the baby came from heaven with a diamond and left it under the cabbage patch and the diamond grew into a baby and like and then Wednesday's just like our parents had sex. <laughs> um, I seem to remember Nathan Lane having quite a nice because again you got again you got really kind of good people popping up in the supporting cast and Nathan Lane um, as the cop when like Gomez goes to the cops about the about um, Debbie and and Festa. Um, I remember that being quite a quite a fun bit. Um, the thing, one of the lines that I like about Festa is when. Um, Joan Cusack says, like, he's such a lazy killer and without missing a beat, Gomez is like, acquitted. Acquitted. That is actually that that delivery, the speed of that delivery. Yeah. Acquitted. <laughs> um, what's Chippewa? It's an old Indian word. And then Wednesday's like, it means orphan. <laughs> like the bleakness of that entire story. Because like the, the sp- in fact... It's really interesting, like the speech she gives when she burns down the the like Indian play. Yeah. <laughs> like you look back at the sort of politically correct nineties and at the time that probably would have seemed like really out of place. But now like what, twenty, thirty years on, yeah. We sort of look at that and go, You couldn't you just couldn't do that story without including that now. Mm. Like, in a way, we sort of and I mean we as in like the PC brigade of which I count myself. Like oh, we sort of won that argument. Like you can't just uncritically do the the story of the pilgrims coming to America and like bringing culture to the savages. Like you have to acknowledge like, yeah, it wasn't all great. And it seems sort of really, I'm going to say brave and I don't mean that as a pun. But it seems like a, a brave thing to put in there, especially when it's aimed at, you know, kids and families. Mm. It probably wasn't as easy as it seems. Like, I don't know, because I'm not American. I don't know how the conversation was in the early 90s. But certainly the fact that it's still going on to some extent today makes me think it probably wasn't as as widely accepted that you could criticise, you know, the, the birth of America in that way at the you know, in 1993 or whatever. Yeah. But I had a good time with that entire plot. I think, I think it's pro I think it's probably, uh, for us kind of British kids watching it growing up, that's probably how a lot of us learned about <laughs> any, oh, absolutely. Yeah. About that story anyway, both the sanitized version and the non-sanitized version. <laughs> um, I just would pick out as well, just a couple of lines. Now I've, now I've, I've looked a couple up, but uh, a great one from Morticia, which is, uh, I'm just like any modern woman trying to have it all loving husband, a family. It's just, I wish I had more time to seek out the dark forces and join their hellish crusade. <laughs> I love the phrase hellish crusade. Yeah. Um and the line from Joel to Wednesday, uh, which feels like it would it would resonate for a lot of people. Uh but the line about what if you met the right man who worshipped and adored you, who'd do anything for you, who'd be your devoted slave, then what would you do? I'd pity him. I'd pity him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've said before, like, pretty much everything about Wednesday Adams explains my entire romantic history. Because she was like my first proper crush when I was a kid. 
when you were a kid it's important yeah yeah obviously obviously like (laughs) how old was i i would have been 11 so yeah so it's allowed it's it was allowed at the time (laughs) but like she's extremely smart extremely miserable and so is everyone i've ever been romantically involved with Where, whereas I think when it when it comes to the Adams Family films, my my heart more than anything else, as I say, belongs to that pinball table. Um, and this, <laughs> that was a that was a good segue. Uh, to, I, I wondered how I'd yeah, yeah a good segue that makes it sound like he had sex with a pinball table. Well done. <laughs> how do you know I didn't? No, but do you know what? Right, genuine story uh, relating to uh, someone who I was interested in at. Uh, secondary school and did ultimately end up going out with for a bit um, where we had both separately remarked on the presence of an Adams Family pinball table in a in a uh, cyber gaming cafe in Southport like uh, on separate occasions told to us by a friend of ours who worked there we'd both arrived and gone oh wow you've got Adams Family pinball so that became a conversation point later on uh, so there you go. It does actually. It is actually relevant. But Adam's Family Pinball is 100% the greatest pinball table ever made. It's brilliant, and I'm so pleased that they released a digital version of it that I think you might not be able to get anymore for licensing reasons. But it was on uh, what's it called? Is it Pinball Addict or there was anyway? Yeah, there was the a pinball, pinball app, app that released loads of classic tables, and Adam's Family Pinball is fantastic. Um, what was really weird was watching the first film and hearing lines of dialogue that are used on the pinball table. But they re-recorded them for the table. So in some of them, like the delivery, particularly some of the Gomez lines, is actually different from how it is in the film. And it was really weird hearing them back in the context of the film. <laughs> Things like, uh, keep the ball, I have a whole bucket full. And, ah, thank you, thing, and stuff like that. But it's just as a table to play. I can't really describe kind of what makes it so great other than it's just one of those where you always kind of... Some pinball tables you play and you're just like, I've no idea what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm just going to randomly hit things. But the Adams Family one, everything is well laid out and it's always clear about what you're supposed to be trying to hit at any given time yeah, in order yeah. to do something. So it's really easy to get into and get into a rhythm with and actually it's, just enjoy playing. It's funny, so actually. It's I played brilliant. I played Adams Family pinball possibly for the first time ever this year at a loading bar in Delson. Because I went in there and they had it. I was like, mm. you know what? I'm not going to leave without playing this mythical pinball table. <laughs> so this year I've managed to watch two Adam's Family films and play the pinball table. There's a good chance I'll be seeing the third, I was gonna say, third <laughs> one. Or the film, yeah. sorry. The, the animated yeah, yeah, film. The, the, the new one's still out, so you might still get that in. It's going to be a, a very Adams-y year for you. Um, one yep. thing that I bet you won't watch this year is the third Adams Family film. Did you even know that there is a third Adams <laughs> I did Family know film? that there was one. It's called Adams Family Have Reunion. you ever seen it? Was it? straight to video. I've never seen it. It was straight to video, but it's the kind of thing, because it's kind of straight to video, but it's very much kind of TV movie sort of values, because it is effectively a pilot uh, for a TV show. They wanted okay. to do a new Adams Family TV show. I didn't know So that. I've actually seen it because it did used to occasionally get shown on ITV. You know, like on like a Saturday afternoon when ITV had nothing else. They just stick on like <laughs> as opposed to like the rest of the week when ITV well. has nothing else. <laughs> yeah, um, but no. So I, I I've seen. I didn't see it all the way through, but I've seen about maybe about half an hour, forty minutes or so of it. And despite the fact that it's got Ed Begley Jr. in it, um, you know, and again, love love Ed Begley Jr. from his appearances in Christopher Guest films. Uh, it's 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 really bad. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, Tim my Curry. guess is that it's risible. <laughs> Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's 
I can see what they're doing with casting Tim Curry as Gomez. Uh, that's, that in itself is not necessarily a terrible choice. But the thing with Tim Curry is you have to kind of you have to get the right Tim Curry on the day, uh, and they didn't get that here. Um, they've got it's got Daryl Hannah as Morticia. It's got a load of people you've never heard of as the rest of the family, uh, except for uh, Carol Streaken, who played Lurch in the first two films, is the only returning cast member. He also plays Lurch. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I know him best as Mr. Hom from Star Trek, although he was also in Twin Peaks. Ah. He's quite a pretty famous actor, certainly a character actor. He's done quite a lot of things, like anything that requires an unusually large man. (laughs) Any and anything He's that calls in. for somebody who is seven foot tall. Um yep. yeah. <laughs> He's in Men in Black as well. Oh, is he? Yeah. Well, Barry Sonnenfeld. There you go. Yeah. Uh but yeah, it's just it's I mean it, the, well the setup of it is that basically uh they get accidentally invited to a family reunion of a different Adams family with only one D. Um, and it's it's somebody played by Ed Begley Jr. who's who's trying to kill his family in order to steal their money. So he thinks that the Adams is are oh, that I don't know. It's a whole. It wasn't very good. It's a, it's it's a nineties straight to DVD slash TV movie. That's kind of all you need to know about it. Um, so that I think did pretty much kind of kill the franchise until uh, this new animated movie, which. I think the main thing I've seen people say about this film is why would you put together an Adams Family cast that's Oscar Isaac as Gomez <laughs> and Charlize Theron as Morticia and then put them in animation instead of just making <laughs> it a live action movie isn't it? Like, with them. As soon as they say Oscar Isaac as Gomez, you go, how perfect is that? And then they go, oh yeah, he's not actually going to be on screen. You're like, why? Why wouldn't yeah. you put him on screen? Because you've sort of... You know, I think ever since Raul Julia passed away, that has become a role where you're like, well, nobody could possibly play that again. And then all you've got to do is draw a pencil moustache on Oscar Isaac and you go, ah. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and it's also got Chloe Grace Moretz as Wednesday, uh, voice thereof. <laughs> Finn Wolfhard as Pugsley. Nick Kroll as Festa. See, it's a, it's a really good voice cast, but yeah, I would be happy to watch all of these people playing live action versions. <laughs> Though, isn't it directed by the guy who did Sausage Party? Am I imagining that? Um, it is directed by Conrad Vernon and Greg Tiernan, uh, who are indeed the uh, co-directors of Sausage Party. There you go. So there's a good yes. reason not to watch it. But also Conrad Vernon, uh, did they both, or is it just Conrad Vernon, also directed, co-directed Shrek 2 and Monsters vs. Aliens and Madagascar 3. And TBA, Untitled Animated Jetsons film. Great, so, so he's going to be fucking up a different 60s that, property. Yeah. Um, I mean, the film, from the sound of it, it's fine. Thing is, I don't like the character designs, and I know the character designs <laughs> I mean, are they, based yeah, they on are the original. More authentic to the original oh, Adam's yeah. drawings, so it's not the character designs; it's how they've managed to make those character designs look when rendering them in three D. And I think going down a route of actually like doing them flatter would have suited it better like you look at um the um the charlie brown peanuts movie from a couple of years ago mm-hmm. um that managed to take something that is so famously and characteristically flat 
like you you know you bet you can barely imagine peanuts being anything other than than flat drawings but somehow they came up with an animation style that was 3D but still felt natural as a kind of evolution of that um but I don't really think that the look of this Adams family film does that at all but, no yeah. No. Uh, it's made more money than Amazon Family Values, anyway. It's made $84 million so far, so that's something. Is that adjusted maybe, for inflation? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Um, maybe maybe in the sequel we'll get the voice of Joan Cusack. So. It's got Catherine O'Hara in it as well, and Martin Short. This is a great voice cast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that is basically a run-through... Uh, aside from talking about the TV show and the the seventies spin off movie and the nineties animated series, um, all of which I mean I've got a vague recollection of there being a nineties cartoon, but any movie that came out between like about nineteen eighty five and about nineteen ninety six had an animated. <laughs> it goes a bit later than point. that as well. Men in Black cartoons, Godzilla cartoons, yeah, yeah. the MC Hammer cartoon where he had talking shoes. I still can't believe they made a cartoon of Little Shop of Horrors. New Kids on the Block. Um, but yeah so anyway that was the uh, all, all most of the Adams family mixed bag but with a real standout in the shape of a pinball table and Adams family values which is one of the best comedies of the 90s and uh, if you're looking for something funny to watch this Halloween then that or a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror are going to be about as good as it gets <laughs> Halloween being famously the day for comedies right yeah, well, it is. It is if you don't like horror. <laughs> so, <laughs> genuinely, I think Adam Sandler values is like a lot of films. You think, oh, that was good, and then you look and you're like, oh, it was good for the nineties. Adam Sandler mm. values just absolutely holds yeah. up. Like some, up so well. some of the aesthetics are a bit nineties esque, and I think it's. I'm mainly talking about the score here. Like when I'm not sure who did the score. Um, Mark Shaman and Ralph Saul. Yeah. So it feels very boilerplate 90s in that it's sort of a bit um, Danny Elfman-esque. I mean, it's got sort of... um, uh, It has to be tied to that theme tune and it does feel like everything is just a kind of variation on that motif, you know? Yeah. The best version of that theme tune is uh, the tag team version, Adam's Family Wump. Which, if you remember the song Wump, there it is, is basically goes Wump, the Adams family, there it is. There it is. I'm just going to, because I've landed on this, and I just want to read you a sentence from Tag Team's Wikipedia entry, uh, which reads In the early 90s, Tag Team broke stereotypes about the hip hop genre by demonstrating that there is more to hip hop than inflammatory lyrics. <laughs> The success of Woomp There It Is represented a milestone in the history of hip-hop because it has been enjoyed by culturally and generationally diverse audiences and the interactive, participatory nature of the music gives it an appeal that has lasted over the years. Now, that was that was almost certainly written by one of the members of the band, but amazingly, it's got three citations. That sentence has got three citations on Wikipedia. <laughs> And you thought they just added the words Adam's family to the I words mean, Wump, there it is, for the sake of a cheap hit. <laughs> Revolutionary. I can only assume that they're saving an entire episode of Hip Hop Evolution to cover it, because it's not been mentioned so far. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's that's our run through Adam's family. But it's not quite the end of the podcast. Uh, we're going to 
uh, well, we're kind of our, our usual format is to play a game of some kind at the end, and I guess you could call this a game. This game is called "How Many of Our Listeners Can We Alienate in One Go by Doing a Little Bit of Watchmen Chat." Um, so if you if you if you're one of the people who doesn't want to hear us do this, and we put this question out on Twitter because basically some people had come to us and kind of asked us to actually kind of explain rather than angrily rant and argue with Joe about why we feel the way we do about the Watchmen TV show and and why we we don't think that there's a good reason for it to be happening. Um, I asked if people wanted us to do that because I felt like we had already kind of given our reasons when we were talking about it um, back in the early days and I didn't want us to just spend another new segment going round, round and round in circles over it. Some people said they did want to hear it. Some people said they really, really didn't. <laughs> a lot of people it. said they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. why we're Quite doing strongly. it at the end of an episode. <laughs> so we're doing it at the end of an episode. So uh, if you don't want to hear that, either switch off now or, yeah. or spin on a little bit so you can... If you've newly backed us on Patreon, which a few people have this month, spin on so you can hear your name being read out at the end. I feel bad that actually those people are going to get their names read out at the uh, an ending that the fewest ever people are going to listen all the way through to. Uh, so we might do those ones again. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen the numbers on our <laughs> Chronicle episode. Well, yeah. Uh, but we didn't have a Patreon back That's then. That's true. So... <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, yeah, so we're going to just, I'm, I'm, I, as I say, I don't want us to spend like half an hour kind of going round and round in circles. We haven't got Joe to argue against. And what, what I kind of want to do is ask James to actually kind of explain the sort of the historical context a bit more. Um, and yeah, just, you know, because I think it's easy as well to go, well, why are you bothered about Watchmen and not about pretty much any other comic book superhero adaptation where the original creators will probably have been treated badly by Marvel or DC at some point? Like that in itself is not an invalid point, but I want to kind of get into why it's really specific to Watchmen. So, uh, yeah. So James. if you don't want to hear any Watchmen first, if you don't want to hear any Watchmen chat, <laughs> <laughs> goodbye we'll thanks see for, you next th- week thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it we'll we'll see you next time for when, when we've decided what our next episode is uh but for everybody else james um 
what's the what's the deal in the first place? What happened when Watchmen was first published contractually? Okay, so certainly for me, the thing about the Watchmen TV series is like I I don't feel like I can watch it because, in my opinion, the and certainly in the opinion of Alan Moore who wrote it, the characters were essentially stolen or his creation. His co-creation was essentially stolen from him by DC slash Warner, who gave him a contract which stated that they would have certain rights over Watchmen while the original graphic novel or the, you know, the collected edition of the of the comics remained in print. Yeah. This deal was signed in the mid-80s, and at the time the idea that a single graphic novel would remain in print for 30 plus years was unheard of. Um, I'm not sure how right I am in thinking this, but I have a, a vague memory that no graphic novel had ever had an official sort of second printing even. I don't. The only thing I wondered was whether uh, Contract with God... But then I think God, Contract with God was quite slow to be successful. So I don't know if by 1985 there had been multiple printings. Yeah, the one the one that I wonder about... That's the only one I can think of. The one that I wonder about is the Dark Phoenix saga because that is the only one that's sold as many copies as Watchmen, I think, or had as many yeah. editions. I, I, I went Will Eisner, you went X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On brand. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, certain, certainly the idea that a single graphic novel would remain in print perpetually for 35 years yeah. was unheard of. The I think the whether or not DC thought this at the time, I think certainly the assumption on signing the contract was this will get printed, you'll, this will get printed as its monthly issues. And it's worth bearing in mind as well with Watchmen. Watchmen was not sat down and written and planned from the start to be a book. It was a 12-issue miniseries. It's just that it's so um, immaculately constructed and so, you know, things like the cover design and everything feels like such a coherent whole that you can't imagine it being a monthly ongoing series that was, you know, the later issues were being worked on and written and drawn after the first issues had been published. That That is how mm-hmm. it came out. It was a comic. It was a monthly comic series. Um, so the thing thought was it would come out as those issues. It would get a collected trade. Uh, there might have been a feeling that you know you could wow, you might get a second printing because it was so hyped and it, it you know um, I think everyone knew it was going to be a hit because of the status that Alan Moore had at DC at the time. But again, this is still a time when the, you know, this is pre Sandman. This is comics were not in the bookshops. And, you know, the, yeah, the idea of a book getting constantly reprinted just wasn't on the table. So a reasonable assumption, and as I say, whether or not DC ever actually intended that this is the case, a reasonable assumption on which the contract was signed would be individual issues, collected edition, maybe another printing. In a few years' time, it'll have died down. We won't be printing it anymore. It gets handed back to you. Do with it as you will. And that's not what happened because it's pretty much the most successful comic in the history of the media. Yeah, although part of the reason for that is that it's in DC's interest to promote it as such and to keep it in print. Like, there's no denying that Watchmen is incredible. I think had it been any other comic, it would have fallen out of print by now. But D- 
DC absolutely cannot allow that to happen. Yeah. Not least because they've staked huge parts of their corporate sort of strategy on exploiting Watchmen in various ways. Like, so they did the Watchmen prequels, they've done the Watchmen movie, they're doing a Watchmen TV series of sorts. Yeah, it's and this is this is where this this question of you know did they ever actually intend for the rights to revert? Because there certainly comes a point where um, all of these things that have happened would be impossible if the rights were ever going to revert back to Alan Moore. DC can't sell the movie rights to something to a studio with the caveat that one day those rights might not have been DC's to sell. Um, and and you know if the rights ever did revert to Moore and Gibbons, would we see a situation where they could order DC to pulp every extant copy <laughs> uh, that remained unsold of uh, Doomsday Clock and Before Watchmen? And genuinely, I don't know uh, what the situation would be over the the rights to the to the movie and to the TV show because I think it's an unprecedented situation. I mean, it's never going to happen. I think they I think they're from from DC's point of view, they're fortunate that it's so popular and I think pretty much always will be that they'll never have to stop printing. They're never going to end up with a warehouse full of unsold, you know, millions of unsold copies of Watchmen because they've had to keep doing print runs and nobody's buying it. For as long as DC are printing comics, people will be buying Watchmen. That's just a given now. But I, I don't think that anyone involved in that deal at the time ever expected that to be the case as i say i i don't believe either that dc kind of really i don't really believe that they duplicitously said uh you know that they put that deal on the table knowing that they were going to constantly reprint it yeah because no, I, no, I no, you had no way again, of knowing if you couldn't you couldn't possibly have, yeah you couldn't possibly yeah. have guessed when you print that book that it would it would sell so much so consistently yeah. forever essentially like it's yeah. not but it's not something you can gamble on but at any point since those initial editions, DC could have decided, and okay, you could argue, well, you know, why should a business take a decision that's that's not actually <laughs> viable for them? But they could have decided to make a particular print run the last print run in order to allow the rights to revert. And they've never done that because it's I mean, better equally, for them to exploit it and make loads of money off the it. The thing is equally right. They, they could have drafted some more favourable agreement with Moore and Gibbons that said, like, okay, we're going to keep reprinting the book. You can have the rights to the characters back for more original work or something. Mm. Like that, again, that's that's the kind of situation you get in comics sometimes, which is that yeah. one publisher owns the right to the story, but the creators own the rights to the characters. Yeah. And that's, I mean, because I think a thing that's worth noting is... Um, this isn't really about money as such because it's not like they don't get royalties and Alan Moore will have been entitled to a lot of money from the exploitation of the Watchmen characters, from the sequels, from the movie and from the TV show. Alan Moore, for his own reasons, has chosen to forgo that money and and give it away. Uh, But, you know, it's not like he's saying... DC, you owe me hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it would never have been hundreds of millions of dollars that he'd make from it, but you know what I mean? It's like, he's not saying you owe me loads of money for this because I want to take it and reprint it at another publisher and make the money. It's it's the control over it. It's the fact that the control has been taken completely out of his hands and things can be done with that property and those characters and that setting that he has no right of approval over. Which kind of brings us, if you sort of... Uh, you know, if you, you kind of accept that there is no sort of, you know, from a legal point of view, nothing DC have done is wrong. From a moral point of view, 
James and I and many other people feel that you know they that they should leave it alone in order to honour the fact that they've effectively wound up with this lucrative property by accident. But there are those who would argue, bring us on to kind of another frequently asked question about this, that Alan Moore himself has done comics that are based on other people's characters without their consent, including Watchmen, if you want to make that argument that it's a derivation of the Charlton Comics characters, I think it's enough of a distinct thing that that's irrelevant because the superhero genre is founded on variations of the same tropes and archetypes, but that he has also done League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and probably most contentiously Lost Girls. Um, and at times he has, I think, deliberately pushed the boundaries of um, you know, allowable fair use of public domain characters and sneaking in characters that are basically you know harry potter and james bond and such (laughs) i mean Um, so one of my arguments here is that even if alan moore is using james bond he is not set like he unquestionably is right aside from the fact that the character is named in such a way as to be legally distinct from james (laughs) bond that is that is james James bond Bond, right and it's intended (laughs) to be james bond within the context of the story what Alan Moore doesn't do is say, here is an official James Bond comic that I have written with the words James Bond on the cover. Mm. Like, there is a there's a legitimacy to him skirting the boundaries of, of what's, like, allowed that doesn't infringe the moral right of the owners of James Bond. And again, I'm aware that's a movie studio at this point or whatever, right? Rather than, you know, Ian Fleming, who is long dead. But, Mm. like, I guess my point is that the use of characters who are in the public domain or who have lapsed or, you know, the, the original creators have died is that nothing Alan Moore is doing is purporting to be the official version of that continuation and not infringing any creative rights by the actual owners of the property. In fact, mentioning Lost Girls specifically, one of the things that Alan Moore did was delay publication of Lost Girls in the UK for a year because Great Ormond Street, who owned the rights to Peter Pan, came to him and said, like, we understand you're using Wendy Darling, who is public domain in the US. Actually, in the UK, we own the rights, and if you do it, we'll have to sue you. And he's like, "Well, I don't want to. Don't want to upset a children's hospital. Don't want to be responsible for taking money from them in a legal framework. So mm. I'll just not publish the book until the character is out of copyright next year." So, in that sense, he absolutely respects the boundaries that have been placed on those characters. Mm. I, th- I think the other thing with Watchmen as well is, and what I don't want to spend a load of time getting into is kind of conversations and debates that we've been having about, like, creatively the argument to be made about, uh, uh, you know, why should there be a sequel to Watchmen when creatively there's no good reason for it because it's a self-contained thing. I don't even really want to get into that because what I kind of wanted to do with this was to talk a little bit more about the facts and kind of what's what's actually happened but the other thing that i think is worth touching on and this is the thing that's actually i think it's actually nudged me more towards your position of ignoring it entirely than i was previously because what i've always had is a kind of feeling of distaste around it and i, and I never bought before watchman or or doomsday clock but you know I, I did go and see the movie in the cinema 
and I might have been tempted. Whereas you, you only. I actually, I, I don't think I realised how hardline your stance on the movie was until we did it for the podcast. And you were like, I literally would not have watched it if we weren't doing it for the podcast. And I was like, oh shit, we made you watch it when you weren't going to. Yeah. Um, I, th- but, I know, only watched watch it for Alita the podcast. Angel when I wasn't. Going I, w- to, so. <laughs> I only watched it for the podcast because I could do it without giving money to anyone involved. Because I yeah. borrowed a copy um, of the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I, I might curiosity might have got the better me the better of me with the show uh particularly given the positivity of a lot of the reviews um but the thing that's really done it for me is um you know in all of this if you if you are choosing to go ahead and make the thing anyway because you believe certainly that there is a legal right to and also that you you know as i say you you don't feel strongly enough about the moral argument against it not to do it i feel like the very least you can do is when you have got somebody who has publicly and often discussed the the personal hurt that he feels as a result of what's gone on uh with that work now again if you're if you're someone who doesn't care about that then fine ignore it whatever that's that's your choice but if you're someone who purports to be such a big fan of this man and his work and he has said I don't like that these things happen anymore. You know, he used to have the attitude of adaptations don't hurt the original work because the original work is there. And then a load of stuff happened. And again, sort of, without going kind of too much into it, but but to talk from a factual point of view, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen got him dragged into a court case because um, somebody spuriously sued 20th Century Fox saying that it was a rip-off of a script of theirs called Cast of Characters, which the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics predated. But Fox, instead of fighting the case, settled it and by implication that effectively from Alan Moore's point of view conferred on him an implication of guilt because part of their their premise was that he had been hired by Fox to write a comic that they could turn into a film so he was implicated and by them settling you know while they didn't admit guilt you know settling in a court case kind of naturally leads people to go oh well maybe there was something to it so there was that and then there was the V for Vendetta movie where uh, he said, "Look, because of what happened with LXG and various other things, you know, I don't want to be involved in these. I don't want my name to be on it. Just go ahead and do it. I can't stop you. Go ahead and do it. Don't involve me." And then uh, I think it was was it Don Silver uh, in in a press conference said that Alan Moore had given the project his blessing and was on board with it, and so just basically lied about him having approved it. So to to. I think if you know, it's very clear that if you are gonna do this, he doesn't want his name on it, he doesn't want the royalties from it, he doesn't want to be associated with it in any way. And Damon Lindelof, who purports to be a big fan of Alan Moore, has invoked him in the interviews. He's talked about him in the interviews. He's talked <laughs> and about he keeps doing it as well. It. And he keeps doing it. So Alan Moore's name is constantly getting referred to in relation to the Watchmen TV series. To the extent that to the average person, it's oh, here's the TV series of Alan Moore's Watchmen. Yeah, and, and like, and well, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I mean, at least what people tend to do with Watchmen is is not forget Dave Gibbons, which is good because doesn't often happen with comics. Dave Gibbons, by the way, has no issue with any of this, and you know, uh, he might have his own personal views on whether or not things are any good, but he's happy for these to happen, and he's perfectly entitled to that view. Um, you know, uh, that's I, I don't I don't have a problem with him disagreeing with Alan Moore because it's his. So he's entitled to disagree with Alan Moore mm-hmm. over it. Um, but yeah, you know, just to, to keep referring to him so that his name is in the conversation, the best thing that you can do is not keep talking about him. I think other people should be talking about Alan Moore more in relation to this, but in a sense of 
you know, arguing against it. But it's, yeah, it's the way that Lindelof has made him part of the PR cycle for it. And that's that's not on. Yeah, especially because Alan Moore's position is like, just don't talk to me or I'll watch men. I don't want to be involved in anything. I will not comment on it. Like, yeah. you say, will like, struggle we're, we're to find... We're talking about him, so we're bringing him into the conversation, but... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel at least we're not doing it to promote the thing, right? We're do- if anything, yeah. we're doing it to try and convince you that there is a moral problem with with watching this creation that's based on Poloin's characters, right? Yeah. Um. I mean, one of the arguments I would... I would say here is that part of the reason not to do it is because if if you treat creators badly, they don't do more creating. Like that is, it's just simple logic, right? Mm. You will never get the second Watchmen out of Alan Moore because he has been driven from from the company and from the medium. And it seems notable to me that that Watchmen only really started to get exploited when DC became a little bit more sort of beholden to its corporate owners and crucially couldn't possibly get any more work out of Alan Moore. Because it, things like Sandman, mm. which are closely associated with Neil Gaiman, they're happy to keep keep those characters safe from interference basically because yeah, I mean, Neil Gaiman is happy to cooperate and occasionally check him a check him a press quote or yeah. you know in some cases an entire new Sandman series that they can then yeah. sell Sandman is fascinating because it's you know not only is Sandman completely lock stock and barrel owned by DC like Neil mm-hmm. Ga- it is not creator owned Neil Gaiman does not own any aspect of Sandman. Yeah. It is itself a derivation of existing DC stuff. So even if Neil Gaiman did try to make some kind of claim over it, DC could actually argue that it's all derivative and and spinning off from their own characters. And yet, purely for the purposes of keeping that positive relationship with Neil Gaiman, who has a, a massive audience outside of comics and who with Sandman, I think has you know, with, with like at least in terms of like Marvel and DC comics, I think has done more to bring readers from outside of comics into shops to buy their comics than anybody else. Purely for the purposes of maintaining that relationship with him and, and having you know him as as a promotional uh, mouthpiece for them, they give him a creative consultant credit on anything they do that's a spin-off from Sandman and they don't do them without him approving you know he won't approve all the material but he'll approve the fact that they're doing it before they go ahead and do it mm-hmm. um they don't do that with Alan Moore because they don't need to it it's you know yeah. there, there's no <laughs> there's no good reason to keep Alan Moore happy them. because he's never going to yeah. work for them yeah so it is you know yeah all 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 quite mercenary in the end. Yeah, and like you say, and that's in the past, and that's a, sorry, well, that's the thing, right? This is another of the issues I have is that there are a lot of things about this in like forties, fifties, sixties. Like all of these characters are in some way exploited beyond the initial expectations of the people who created it. Like when mm. you know when Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were making Captain America in the nineteen forties, they were not 
ever imagining that he would be at the forefront of like the pop culture conversation 70 years later in the biggest movie of all time. That's not to say that they've been treated exactly the same way as Alan Moore has, because at the very least, like they were, they were doing the work under a specific like agreement that was common at the time when things changed and admittedly with a lot of renegotiation, like they're, you know, they were in some way compensated for the extra lengths to which, you know, the exploitation of Captain America as a character had gone. Like Jack Kirby for all he contributed to Marvel was eventually rewarded for that. Mm. Or at least his estate was, I forget whether it happened before or after he died, but certainly they didn't just leave him out in the cold in the way that DC has essentially said to Alan Moore, go and fucking jump off a bridge. Like, there was at least some acknowledgement that, hey, actually, of everything you've done for Marvel, we're going to recognise that in some financial way. And, you know, when, again, when they created those characters, it's sort of a scandal that Jack Kirby and Joe Simon didn't own Captain America when they were published by Marvel. But that was the that was always the agreement from the start, right? Is that Atlas Comics at the time said, hey, either make this character for us or sell, sell us a character that we can then publish. Mm. Whereas when Watchmen was made, as we said, it was it was given to DC on the assumption that they would then give it back at some point. And it's like, if you lend someone your football, <laughs> you know, and they say, yeah, you can have it back when the game is finished. You don't expect that game to continue for 35 years uninterrupted. It's important to point, it's important to point out, right, I have no issue with people who want to watch the Watchmen show. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not judging you. Yeah. I mean, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, I, no, genuinely I'm not, especially because... Uh, this stuff isn't hugely widely known and also doesn't necessarily matter to a lot of people and again i I don't say that in a judgmental way it's just we we are quite invested in this situation and yeah i mean this is the thing right it you know it really it does matter to me that the people who create these characters are treated fairly and alan moore in this specific circumstance has been treated extremely unfairly i mean dave gibbons to a point as well but he is at least happy with the circumstances mm. or willing to have different conversations with DC than Alan Moore is. Um, I do think if you're willing to watch the show, you should at least interrogate these these questions and think, why why is it so important to watch a TV show based on a superhero property that seems in some way creatively morally like deficient like what's why not just watch something else i mean you know and as you said with with the other comparison examples you know people could make that argument to me with superman for example i mean again it was it was the deal that was signed at the time they were basically siegel and schuster were actually conned by bob kane of all people (laughs) bob kane bob kane maneuvered them into an unfavorable deal with dc basically to get on dc's good side to get a better deal for himself for batman uh, but that's because Bob Kane was awful. Uh, but you know, I, and and you know, it is sometimes a difficult thing to reconcile 
with with being interested in and talking about comics and comic book movies so much and you know this stuff does still go on to this day and as much as marvel put people's names on the films you know gary friedrich was was fighting them for a while in in the courts um you look at people like bill mantlo i mean actually to be fair bill mantlo's brother said that actually you know he has had they can't talk about details but he has had support off marvel but again it's like people in situations that that you know they might not necessarily be in if the deals had been good in the first yeah. place you know um every, you know and everyone has their it, it, i mean everyone has their different lines and it's like i think what annoys me is when people do kind of get go slightly in into what aboutism and at the end of the day this is something that's a very specific set of circumstances that we are very aware of um you know and and also i think it, i think it's partly you know again because sort of the the importance to us as comics readers and as british comics readers of alan moore um you know actually kind of knowing people who know him as well i think sort of probably brings it a bit closer but it's just it's yeah it's i i don't want to be made to feel like i can't have an opinion on this when I'm happy to talk about Marvel movies and Superman movies and stuff, because um, yeah, you could take a stance on all of this that it's all stolen intellectual property at the end of the day. Yeah, and just I mean, ignore all of it. One but... of one of the things actually that that makes the world of difference for me is that, like, this happened within our lifetimes. Alan Moore is still yeah. alive and being actively harmed by this. It's yeah. like, what about the Watchmen TV show makes it okay to actively harm the person who created these concepts and came up with them? Like, that's the yeah. question that I I can't find a satisfactory answer for that allows me to watch the TV show. And if you can, fine. But at least ask yourself the question before you do it. Hmm. I'll be interested to see if the TV show features a scene set to Rock and Roll Part 2, because that will really <laughs> uh, set things off. <laughs> Well, I think unless you've got anything else you wanted to add to that, I think we've we've hopefully explained our point of view to an extent that means we hopefully don't have to ever talk about it again. Yeah, I think we can. If you made it this far, I think we should promise never to mention the Watchmen TV show again. Yeah. Um, if you have made it this far, then you know, thank you for seeing through that. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and or you know or some or all of it, and and you haven't already. Uh, then please consider subscribing. I'm going into the spiel now, James. Uh, you can find <laughs> us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, or any other podcast app of choice, unless it's not on there. Uh, you can find a full searchable index of every episode at cinematicuniverse.com, along with all the subscription feed links and a big archive of features and reviews. If you are a subscriber already and you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on your podcast platform. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematicuniverse, which helps us to get the podcast edited and produced and convince our families that the show isn't a waste of time. If you back us on there, you get to hear episodes ad-free and sometimes early as well as bonus material. Uh, if none of you haven't like dropped off already as a result of, of this episode, then thanks to uh, Brendan Roberts for being a top backer and to all of Ed Edmondson, Ashley Day and Richard Perrett for signing up since the last episode. You can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redball.com. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, on Twitter at cine underscore verse, or with an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening to all of that, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.